Yukon is Athabascan. It means great river, which it is. It's gigantic. It's majestic. It's amazing. It's like 3,000 kilometers long. And if you go to the delta, the banks are sometimes four or five kilometers apart, which is crazy. It's more like an ocean before mm. it gets to the ocean. It is big and humbling and being out there for weeks at a time, all by yourself, exploring this vast country was just something that was so intriguing that I could not resist. Welcome to Out of Adventuring, the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys. They not only take us through their hardships and highlights, but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life. Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective, and today with me is Dirk Rohrbach, a German adventurer, journalist, photographer, and author who absolutely fell in love with the vast American landscape. Contrary to adventurers who seek the poles or the highest mountains on this planet, Dirk has a different mission and drive. That is not to say that he hasn't been to extreme and extraordinary places. And one of his biggest adventures was rowing down the Yukon River, the mystical and magical river that meanders through Canada and Alaska. But he truly fell in love with the American people. Now, obviously not with all of them and all the time, but he found that especially in contrast to European mindsets, the American dream is still alive. That's why he spends pretty much all of his time touring around the United States, mainly on his bicycle. And while he's doing that, he puts the people in the center. In all of his books and his journalistic work, it's always the people he meets, he interviews, and especially in a times like today with strong political divide, Dirk tries to capture that mood across all kinds of states, across all kinds of towns and villages and cities that he very slowly passes while on his bike. But to understand where that desire and that dream is coming from, we have to go to the very beginning to understand who Dirk really is. That's a profound question to begin with. <laughs> But thank you for having me, Tobin. It's an honor, a pleasure. So who am I? That is a question I've been trying to answer for a long time. I am Dirk, of course, or Dirk, as my American friends used to call me, <laughs> because it's easier for them. Hanau is my hometown, which is east of Frankfurt. And when I was growing up, Hanau was surrounded by American culture. We had a huge military base, so I was always surrounded by Americans. I played basketball. I had American co-players and coaches. And I think the surrounding kind of planted the seed uh, of my love for America that then eventually in the 80s came to fruition when I was traveling to America first in 88. And ever since, I've been coming back, and it seems like America is more home than anything else I... Well, I need to backtrack a little bit because obviously I didn't go right away to America. I was finishing school, high school, then I went to medical school mm. in Frankfurt, finished that, started working for radio, local radio station first. Then I moved to a big private radio station in Bavaria in Munich, switched to public radio, was doing an internship at a group practice, an orthopedic practice in Munich to get my degree and my license as a physician. And that all changed in 2004 when I took a sabbatical and circumnavigated the U.S. on a bicycle. And yeah, here I am, I don't know, 20 years, almost 20 years later. I've been a nomad for a long time now, traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Europe. But yeah, it feels like America's more home than anything else. What made you go to cycling around the USA? I mean, so many people, they 
that want to go from A to B. So I always feel like a lot of bikepacking adventures, they start with a line. So cycling from where I am to the furthest destination I can come up with. How came it that you said, okay, I really just want to, and that's still very much in line on what you're doing today, but I want to really just dive into the US and cycle around the US. Was it that that upbringing, what you just mentioned, being surrounded by Americans that where you just felt this this curiosity towards America? I think it's two passions that came together. One is my passion for traveling and being outdoors and experiencing adventures, if you want to call it that. And the other passion is America. And I knew that like from the very, that idea was planted in 88 when I was traveling to America first. It was a, I think it was a three or four week trip to the uh, West Coast. And then after that, I thought, I want to explore even more. I want to see more. I want to more be more in, in depth. I want to immerse myself into the American culture, the landscape, the people. And so I decided I'm going to circumnavigate so I can see as much of America as possible. And yeah. the route kind of forces me to go to areas that I maybe would not have chosen otherwise. So that was the plan. Like, what was one of those areas? I think, I th well, I still, for some reason, the East Coast is almost a blank sheet for me. I've not really traveled there except for that one trip during the circumnavigation because the East Coast, to me, felt always like too European. It's way more exotic in the West because these landscapes in the big, the great American West, we don't have that in Europe, right? Yeah. No desert, no Rocky Mountains, no Pacific. So that was always more intriguing. So that's why I chose to circumnavigate and then to kind of go places that are not really on a route. Also the heartland, which I really fell in love with, the middle of America. Mm, just that understanding of how vast the country is and how different the country in forms of geography is. But obviously we get to the point also in, in people. But I find it absolutely fascinating. And I think there's also an element of a lot of Europeans make fun of Americans when they haven't traveled mm -hmm. outside of the U.S. And I think, well, yes, but at the same time, the U.S. has just so much to offer in terms of landscape and nature that honestly, there's also maybe just a limited need if you want to see nature to <laughs> to leave the U.S. Because you have it all, like with Alaska and Hawaii and all these extreme places. It's I can see how you can spend many years just diving into in, into that geography. Yeah. America is not a country. America is a continent. It's almost a planet of its own. And yeah, there's so much more to see than in a country in, let's say, Europe that's rather small. There's no vast open. So yeah, it's certainly yeah. almost like a life's journey that I'm now on. Then jumping a bit back to the start of that life's journey, obviously you had your circumnavigation of the US, which yeah showed you a lot of literally just places, but you also came to some of your own boundaries and you also came to a point this was the first time your first big outing how was that in terms of a personal development point of view just being there for such a long time all by yourself it was a game changer certainly because i've never been away for that long it was six months that i was away from germany from europe so being away for that long gives you the idea of how it can be to live in a different country And then, of course, when you're on a bicycle for most of that time, five, five and a half months, roughly, you are exposed to nature, to whatever she has to offer. Yeah. And you're vulnerable and you expose yourself and that leads to encounters. So I think one of the lessons was that Americans are incredibly hospitable and they really like to help you. And if somebody does a journey like that, like self-powered, and you have a goal, you want to circumnavigate, you want to reach the finish line, they really support that in many ways. 
So mm. for me to, I, I, I think in general, I'm more of an introvert and I'm shy-ish kind of. <laughs> that has changed a little bit since. Yeah. But, you know, I don't have a problem in just being there and by myself and not approaching anybody. But that journey kind of forced me to open up because I needed help. I had issues, technical issues with a bicycle mm. and people were just all around me helping me out. And that led to encounters that almost became friendships and I kept going back. So that was a huge lesson and that it was a transformation, certainly. Then after the U.S., you came back and you, I mean, you started medicine and was it then after that you decided, okay, that was it? It was pretty much when I came back, I knew that I could not go back to the same life that I have had before. So before I was taking that sabbatical, I was working at a practice in Munich. I was seeing patients like in the morning, then I was hosting a radio show in the afternoon or vice versa. And I knew that I didn't want to do the same thing when I was coming back. And I kind of struggled for four or five years to kind of figure mm -hmm. out where my place is because, you know, you're spoiled and maybe you're forever ruined for regular life when you were out there for six months living the dream. So, yeah, I quit medicine first. And then it took me five years to have the courage to quit radio and just start all over again. How was that? How was that decisive moment when you decided to cut all the ties to, as you said, was just like a bit of a comfort, normal life? Like, did it feel freeing or, yeah. you know, more, more terrifying? No, it was totally liberating. And I mean, for some reason, I, it took me so long to figure it out. I think looking back, if I would have had an advice for myself, I would say, hey, don't wait that long. Just make the cut right <laughs> now. It's going to be amazing. But as they say, when you close one door, multiple doors yeah. will open. And, and that's exactly what happened. So yeah, it felt liberating. It was sad because I loved radio so much, but I knew I had that other big dream that was the Yukon River that I wanted to paddle. So that was yeah. luring me in and yeah. I don't want to say I never look back. I still love radio. I still miss radio. I still kind of do some radio, but I'm not hosting shows anymore. And that's something that I really miss sometimes. If you have a host to show, we can flip this around. Unfortunately, I don't have that many interesting things to say, but... <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's going to be a music show. Are you? Do you play an instrument? Do you sing, Torben? Make oh, music? you don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> yeah, if you want yeah. any listeners, you don't let me sing on your show. <laughs> <laughs> well, then maybe we can curate from our favorite musics and just play yeah, the songs yeah, and artists we'll, that we like. We'll find some. I can I'll play a bit of guitar, so maybe I can Excellent. string along some bonfire songs. Find, That's good. Find some... American classics, Bruce right. Springsteen and whatnot. Yes. That can work. The great storytellers, but, yes. Absolutely. How is it? I mean, the Yukon, it's a magical. I, I Honestly, I like the word Yukon. It's almost, it, it also almost transports you to, to the spot. It's such a mystical river. What made you, like what qualified you to decide, hey, I'm going to roll that river? Or was that a, I just want to do it and I'll figure it out along the way moment? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you can qualify for a river. I was seeing, I was going there like a year before I did the exit and then like paddle the entire river. I was there for a week on the river paddling just to get a feel for it. And Yukon is Athabascan. It means great river, which it is. It's gigantic. It's majestic. It's amazing. Mm. It's like 3,000 kilometers long. And if yeah. you go to the delta, to the mouth, the banks are sometimes four or five kilometers apart, which is crazy. It's more like an ocean before mm. it gets to the ocean. 
So yeah, it is big and humbling. And I think after I I read all of Jack London, I thought, well, I, I need to see this. What he wrote about, what he described sounds so yeah. fascinating that I think that was ultimately what uh, triggered my interest in the first place. And then just the idea of, again, being out there for weeks at a time, all by yourself, exploring this vast country was just something that was so intriguing that I could not resist. Did you ever consider teaming up with someone? Yeah, I was talking to a few people before and I thought, well, maybe it's better to do something like that because, I mean, Alaska is a harsh country. And if mm. you make a mistake, it can go wrong really quickly and it can end really badly. So, yes, I was thinking about that. But after traveling there in 2009, that's when I was there for the first time, I thought, no, I think I can handle that. I've, I think mm. the bicycle journey kind of prepped me in a way. And I thought, if I take time and if I just use all my common senses, it, I, I will be all right. Mother mm. Nature, the river, and the people will take care of me. And that's exactly what happened. For anyone who's listening from Germany, they uh, obviously have, almost likely in the adventure space, have heard of you. And the Yukon has been a little bit of that starting point that that sort of propelled you beyond just a, you know, I'm, I'm going out there and having my fun to a bit more professionalizing adventures. And how much was that deliberate decision when you decided to roll down the Yukon that there could be more out of it than just, you know, the adventure and the pleasure for it being there? It was a plan before I started. I was doing, I mean, I, the bicycle journey turned into a book and into a multimedia presentation, which is like, back then it was slides that you put in your projector and you programmed it and then you had music and live narration and go to a venue and there's yeah. hopefully people showing up and then you show this. So I had the idea, okay, if I'm going to do the Yukon River, I think there's enough interest, especially in Germany and Austria and Switzerland, that I think I want to at least write a book about it. And I think I want to come up with another multimedia presentation. So mm. I took a recorder, like an audio recorder to do interviews. I took, and I was prepared to kind of collect footage, audio and photo footage, mm. not so much video, just a little bit and put this all together. So yeah, that, that was certainly a plan before I started. And how did it work out in the end? I mean, obviously, I'm asking a question knowing that it worked out, but how was it nonetheless like this whole, I have this idea and it will be great, and then you have all your footage and you come home. How difficult was it in the end translating these experiences that you had into something very exciting also for people to read and to see? I don't know if that was the... Ch I think the challenge was more the journey itself in a way because the Yukon kind of was challenging me a lot. She... The Americans always say she to rivers, so mm -hmm. I keep using the female version of the Yukon River, even though in, in German it is a male thing. Anyway, so the river was kind of challenging me, and I was traveling in a birch bark canoe, which is very fragile. And I was freaking out when I had like an issue at the second day, and I ended up pretty much wrecking my boat on day oh, wow. two. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good start. No, it was not a good start. But I think that was... The lesson that she wanted me to learn from the very beginning, but it took me some time to acknowledge that and to realize what was going on mm. because that led to meetings that I, I met some of the most amazing people like that led me 
into meeting one of the totem pole carvers of a Tagish and Tlingit nation oh. in Carcrossan, Canada, who helped me out by providing caribou fat that I could use to add to my resin, to my pitch, to kind of seal the seams that I had to do but to kind of stitch a piece of birch bark mm. over where the, the original birch bark was damaged. So yeah, that, that led to, to meetings and I, I'm so thankful that all this happened. I think all the struggles, first of all, they are what make the adventure. I was not really um, doing this trip to have my private adventure and just feel like a hero. I don't think that we humans can conquer a river or any place in nature for that matter. Mm. I, my idea was I'm going to be doing this journey because I enjoy being outdoors. But ultimately, I wanted to meet the people and my journey should only connect, should be the thread to kind of connect the stories of the people that I meet. And I think so, that is such a fascinating aspect of all these adventures you do. Definitely something I want to dive in a little bit because I, I haven't met so many adventurers or explorers, or you choose a word, mm -hmm. that really put the people that they meet along the way in the center, like most of the time. People try to get as far away from civilization and that is then the that is then the achievement, the most remote that, the highest this and unsupported here. Right. And you kind of twist this a bit around, say, okay, it's not about going to the most extreme and the first person ever to do something like that, but maybe being one of the first people who take their time and prioritize the people along the way. How like How did that come about? Was it just like for you an absolute natural thing that you said, okay, like for me, it is just about the people? Yeah, I think to kind of reinvent yourself as an adventurer and do something that nobody has ever done before is extremely hard to, to accomplish because people have done pretty much everything, right? And they have been to almost every corner of, on this planet. And so that was not intriguing to me. And I thought, and I, and in the beginning, I didn't want to call myself an adventurer. Other people call me that, like journalists when they were doing interviews, because they thought, you know, what you're doing is an adventurer, so you're an adventurer. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm a storyteller. I like to travel. And I, you know, I, for me, the mode of transportation, self-powered, slow, and like a birch bark canoe or a kayak, a wooden kayak, or on a bicycle. That kind of helps me to meet people, to notice things along the way, to open doors. So mm. I don't want to say it was a tactical decision, but it certainly helped. And I, again, I just enjoy doing stuff like that. So that's a good thing, right? Yeah. But I always thought it's much more appealing, interesting to me to kind of hear the stories of the people that live in this beautiful, amazing country. And how can I get as close as possible? And so that was ultimately the idea of All My Travels has been ever since and I think will be for a long time. And what I've learned and, and who I met along the way was just so amazing. And that inspires me, what they're doing. And I, I think that's one of the main differences between at least Germans, maybe Europeans in general, more general, any Americans, is like dreaming big and doing your thing and um, don't think about what can go wrong. Think about mm. what you can achieve if you really dare to do something. It is a bit of a mindset difference. And I have to agree. When you tell Germans that you're going to quit your job and you follow your dream, they will come up with 10 reasons why you shouldn't do that. Yep. <laughs> like that's... within the first 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's the initial reaction is, uh, have you thought about this? Are you sure about this? Like, isn't it safer to do that? So did you feel when you are in these adventurous places, like you just mentioned the totem carver in Yukon, 
if you talk to these people, if maybe also ask them what are their dreams, what are they looking for, what do they want out of life, like, what are the answers you get from people that are in, in so remote areas? I actually don't ask that particular question. I don't formulate let, formulate it that way. But like every time I talk to these people, like the totem pole carver, he said to me, what can be more rewarding than a job that you really like, but you also make an impact? You leave something mm. behind, like a legacy. And to keep the culture of totem pole carving alive, me being able to be a part of that, it's such an honor to work with these big logs, with these beautiful trees, and just create something. That's, that says it all to me. They just full of passion. They're not looking back. They just do their thing. They, they fully immerse and then they just enjoy living the dream. And I find that yeah. extremely inspiring. I'm wondering if when you go around in the US where you say that it's such a different mindset towards pursuing a dream, how that is communicated by the average person. Are they just like, just really excited when you tell them your story and what you're pursuing, how is it expressed versus the poor example that I gave of, for example, Germany, that if you tell someone that you're trying to do something unique, they will come up with reasons why you shouldn't do it. Oh, and it. is it fundamentally different in the US? Yes, yes, I would say so, yes. I think Americans in general, they sometimes, I mean, as you probably know, and most of our listeners do know, Americans, they don't have as much vacation time as we Europeans do. So when they go on vacation, they try to make the most of it. And most of them cannot or, or don't dare to take time off and do something that epic, but they completely admire it. And they say, hey, you know what? We can live vicariously through you, what you're doing. We love it. We, we're going to cheer you up. We're going to follow you. We're going to help you whenever you need help. Just call. And they're there. And especially on, like on the Yukon, it's you... The Yukon brings you to villages where Athabascans and Yupik Eskimos live, and they're like incredible people that help you out because everybody, it's a tight-knit community. They know they need to help each other out because the land can be so harsh. They would not survive if they wouldn't help each other. And then when I was circumnavigating, when I was riding my bicycle or when I was paddling on the Missouri River, there's a network of river angels, like trail angels or people that help each other, like, yeah, through different networks. I'm not on social media, but they all know pretty much through other people that you meet if somebody is doing a journey. And then they reach out to you and they say, hey, if you need anything, or they just show up randomly and help you get groceries, resupply, and then send you off again. So yes, I would wow. say it's a huge, huge support from these people. They admire what you do. But then also you meet these interesting characters. I'd like to travel to people where not that many other tourists are going. Mm -hmm. And when you show up, you are exotic to the locals. And then they open the doors and then suddenly you run into these random people that are just amazing artists or just live the dream by doing what they do. And that's what I'm looking for. Sounds almost hard to believe that you have spots in the US where you still feel like you are unique. You would imagine that, okay, they've seen it all. They've been to all, everyone has been there in that sense. It's a... Uh... It's almost hard to imagine that there are still these remote places in the heartland of the U.S. where it's just not a lot of people come by. Yeah, that, that's what I really noticed when I was riding my bicycles. I was, after the circumnavigation, I crossed the country from New York to L.A. on a bicycle also. 
And I love doing that, like crossing the country, because not only does the landscape change, but also the culture and the people. Mm. And, and I find the heartland, heartland extremely fascinating. There's a lot of people, even in America, call these states like in the middle of the country flyover states because supposedly there's nothing to see. Let's just fly over them and go to the amazing places on the west or east coast. Mm. But I said, no, let me figure out what's there. And I love small towns so much and the communities there and, and just the people who are so friendly. You don't have to lock anything. Nobody does, does want to do you any harm. It's just most amazing. So I really enjoy traveling to these areas. And obviously, that's not like a first class destination for like visitors from Europe. They want to go to America. First places are always the West Coast or the East Coast. Yeah. And then the... the great nature wonders of the world in the Southwest or the Rocky Mountains or the Northwest. So yeah, being from Europe and going to these rem relatively remote places, I mean, they're not off the beaten path. Well, they're kind of off the beaten path, but of course they're connected through interstate systems. But people don't really take the time to stop there anymore. No. And I do. I try to get off of the big roads, take small town roads and then just country rural roads and then hopefully find something that's interesting. Now, I want to put my finger on one of those elements, and now this might be naive and too stereotypical, but you said it's like a very like hospitable environment and people help each other and don't need to lock your doors and everything is very safe. That's obviously not the image that at least Europeans have from America that things are particularly safe in the US. So is that just something where you say, well, it's like a big city thing versus a small town thing? Or do you see it really more of a regional difference? That you say, well, there are just regions in the US where the culture is just much more geared towards leaving doors open and just being more on this neighbor terms with each other. I think overall, Americans never used to lock doors because they always are kind of open to anybody and they support each other. But yes, I think it's a city versus rural versus country kind of thing. That's why I really love the small towns and going to places where there's not that many people and where there's no need to, to lock anything. And yeah, I think big cities always scare me. So I try to stay away from them a little bit, but I do lock my bicycle when I go to like San Francisco or LA, which didn't prevent it from being stolen. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. How, how do you feel now? You obviously Again, you're really diving deep into the Americas and, or not the Americas, but just America in terms of the USA and really deep into the culture. And now just looking back at recent, let's say, political events, and I just mean like the last 10 years where there has been such a strong divide and polarization in, in America. How have you experienced that as more or less an outsider who at the same time maybe observes the country way, way more than any American would do because you dive into so many different places. What's your view on that polarization and these very strong opinions that you have in like either end of the country? It's scary. It, it, it was shocking to me when Trump became president. I would have never predicted that. And I struggled and I'm still struggling. It kind of changed my relationship to America a lot. And I think not because it was something new, but because I was aware of it. I, I had to learn it the hard way that, hey, there's way more to America. And I think it's not a new phenomenon. I think mm. America has always been divided, but we didn't pay attention in the first place, especially we Europeans, because we were in a bubble and we just, you know, came there and saw the beauty, the beautiful things that were promoted by the tourism uh, offices. 
Mm. And that's why we came. But um, if you look back into history, like even founding fathers and beyond, it's like, that's crazy what they were dealing with and how they treated each other and how they fought. And the division has always been part of, I think, the DNA of America, which is hard. Also fascinating, I think. America, to some degree, has always been a land of extremes, good and bad, but it is shocking to see, and I'm still struggling. So I would not say that my love for America is unconditional. I would not say that everything is better in America. I think the opposite is probably the case. There's a lot of things in Europe, a lot of things in Germany that I think are way of it. Better is a stupid word, but when it comes to democracy, I think Germany is probably a bigger democracy than America is at this point. And a lot of Americans say, we are not a democracy. We are a republic. Bullshit. <laughs> but um, then you start a political discussion that you probably don't want to have because still, these people, um, no matter what their views are, when it comes to helping each other out, you can always count on them. Hmm. At least, and that's another thing, of course. I'm white. I'm Caucasian. That makes it a lot easier. Um, yeah. And I also think that, yeah, racism, to a certain degree, has always been part of the DNA also of America, which other people have explained to me. Um, and, yeah, they're probably right. In what sense has that been always a part or where you say, well, they're probably right? Well, I mean, even the, when America was found, like the United States were born, let's put it that way. So the founding fathers of that nation, they had slaves. So it was part of their history and it was viewed as kind of normal the way that they had it back then. So that just transitioned into other eras where maybe slavery was abandoned, but discrimination certainly has not. Yeah. And maybe still to this day is very real for a lot of people, especially black Americans. So it's, yeah, I mean, but we shouldn't point fingers. Look at our country, like Germany. Look at Europe, how we deal with, with people, immigrants or people from other cultures and how we, we view them. Oh, it's the same, right? I mean, yeah. it's maybe different parts or it touches maybe different fears or whatever in, in people that are usually completely unreasonable. But in the end, the reactions are very much the same as we mentioned. When you white, white Caucasian, it also gives you a lot of advantages in Europe. Like, make no mistakes that it's not only the US, it's this whole polarization. And I think that's what makes it unfortunately interesting is it's not happening only in America. It's not like every the whole world is doing fine and then we have this political divide in the US. Um, as you said, we have the same thing in Europe. Right-wing parties just gain way more traction. You gear towards these polarization opinions that are being used to dramatize and push things out of proportion. And that's happening, unfortunately, all over the world. Yeah. And then people are realizing it more because of the way that news are shared worldwide. Like social media is a big thing. And we are exposed to more news quicker, faster, louder than ever before in history of mankind. And I think that's what makes some people think, oh, now it's suddenly just all so bad. I think it has always been bad, but back in the day, we may not have heard of it that much. Yeah. You said you don't have social media. Is that something to do with it or are there just no interest from your side? 
Yeah, both. I just don't understand social media. Um, I don't want to spend too much time there. Um, I think if you want to make social media work for you, um, which in my case probably would make sense, you would have to invest a lot of time. And I just don't like to do that. Um, so I, I don't want to do it half-heartedly. So I say, no, I'm going to stay away. I don't want that, at least not yeah. now. Well, as, you, as you said, obviously you as a as an author and filmmaker and storyteller, the interesting thing is when, when you look up your name on Instagram, you actually find a lot of pictures of you. <laughs> like you're not, just because you're not on it doesn't mean you're not on it. Like that's you right. Are. Yeah, that's right. By all of your engagement and, and you still have followers that say in the real world who, who talk about you and book deals that you have. So you do end up somewhat naturally anyways on all these, on all these websites. And, and I think sometimes a downside of social media is especially if you are a more prominent person who anyways ends up there, you kind of, you, you lack out on the ability to raise your point of view to certain things. So now I haven't done all the research on every single article that has been posted on, on Instagram about you, but whenever there's something critical, you obviously, you might or might not have the chance to, to respond to that. Is that something that concerns you at all? Or are you just, you're just happy with that? No, I mean, uh, I don't hear it, so <laughs> nothing to <laughs> exactly. be concerned about. Ignorance is bliss in many <laughs> cases. One of the rules I had to learn also in life, I think, which is good. It's totally real and it's totally valid, I think, that yeah. if you don't know, you don't give a shit. I can swear on this show, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Please, <laughs> it's this, I mean, we sit in Denmark and... Uh, All right. Yeah, pe pe people wouldn't believe, I mean, the kind of stuff you can say and do in Denmark, especially for an American, I think that's... Right. It is shocking. Like it's brutal honesty all the way through. That can be sometimes a little bit <laughs> off-putting mm -hmm. for people, but obviously I prefer that way. My my last question just I don't want to I don't want to make this like a political uh, political show obviously, but has some of these polarization shifts that that happened in the US has that changed the way you travel or the way you see a, a adventure in in America? No, it has not changed the way I travel or anything, but it has certainly changed the way that I interact with people. There's a lot of friends that I have or people I know and I have known for a long time that I had to realize are actually Trumpers, which is really hard to deal with. So they are like the most caring and loving people you can hope for, and they're so giving and they're just amazing. But don't start discussing politics. <laughs> And that sometimes is really hard, you know, I'm on the verge of like, hey, let's stop bullshitting here. Let's look at the facts and then let's, if you think this is the truth, then let's fact check that first. Because yeah. the way that you get your information may not be the best way or the most neutral or the most uh, exact. So, and I don't, you can't always do that. So I'm trying to stay away. I'm paying attention to sometimes what we talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so. You have to tiptoe around a few things sometimes, so that makes it a little more challenging. But yeah. I would, I mean, still, the heartland, that's Trump country, right? Yeah. I still love it. And there's enough, I mean, no matter where you go, even on the, the West Coast, there's a lot of Trumpers there also. Um, yeah. If you go out of the big cities, then you're in Trump country. So there's people from both sides everywhere. And... I have never, ever had a bad experience in all of my travels. So that's wow. why I'm so fond of Americans and I keep going back. Do you sometimes provoke like with your questions or is that something where you just say, no, there's no use in that and that's really not what you want to do? 
No, unless I'm like assigned to, hey, let's figure figure out or find out how people think about certain things, like by the radio station or something. Other than that, I try to stay away from that. My focus is to show other interesting aspects that are worth sharing and hopefully inspire people either to, to come and explore by themselves or b by exposing them to views and people that I have met that I find extremely inspiring, again, mm -hmm. by who they are or what they do. So, yeah, I'm not doing political stuff because I think it's a rabbit hole and to get out of there it can be pretty hard. Yeah. Do you sometimes feel like try that, that you catch yourself trying to educate people? Not educating, but questioning, yes. Because mm. sometimes you have to stand for something, right? Yeah. And when people bullshit, like I had a discussion, give you an example, discussion with a very good mechanic that I, I'm working with. I have a vintage truck, so I need to have good mechanics. And he was one of the best mechanics I have ever met. He's an amazing person, again. To he loves my travels. He's totally interested, very hospitable, just loving, giving, caring person. But since Trump came onto the scene as a politician, supposedly, he has shifted and he is sometimes diving very deep into the net and looking for things and trying to get all his answers. And so he's confronted me with, there's like two million children missing in America every year. Where are they going? Like, isn't that proof that the Democrats are probably having this network somewhere of like trafficking children and, and getting them somewhere? And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> let me do some research on that. So I did. And I found out, yes, the number is actually correct. And I told him the number is correct because it's a, an official number that's provided. But over 98% of these children are back within a day or two because they just run away and that's how they end up in a statistic. Or they are taken away by some family member because of a dispute between ex-husband and ex-wife. And, you know, it's nothing happens to them. Like for the majority, unfortunately, yes, there are some, some children that disappear, vanish, never show up again. But it's not like two million children every year disappear from planet Earth and we have no idea where they are. And so that's just a, a quick example of sometimes I try to dive in a little bit and mm. then kind of find out what's the truth here and maybe I can share. But sometimes it's, it's just not worth doing that, I think, for the sake of, yeah. of, hey, we only have so much time together. Why should we waste it with a discussion that will not lead anywhere? Yeah. I can just imagine that sometimes you have this inner conflict of, yes, it's a great person. Yes, they're very nice. And then you just know that they have a few views. And can you bear those views? Can you just accept, okay, it's a different opinion. I'm fine with that. Or sometimes there is just a line. If someone has such a harsh view, right. that can be just so sweet, but it just, you have to distance yourself from these people. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's certainly a line when they cross the line for me, then I need to say something. I will not tolerate everything that they say, but, you know, again, ignorance sometimes can make the best out of it. And you just listen to it and acknowledge it, and then you just keep going on. Yeah, exactly. Or, and again, you don't have to fight over everything. And right. as you said, it's, I also truly believe that everything in this world is a gray zone, and there is, no, there is no right political opinion and wrong political opinion. It's just it doesn't exist, and you just have to really then look for the specific topic where your values, where, where you want to fly the flag of your values, but you cannot have 
an opinion about absolutely everything on this planet. And sometimes it's just that you say, okay, you have your opinion, I have my opinion, and we can still be decent to one another. Yeah. Where do you call home in America the most? In my truck, on my bicycle, or in my boat. <laughs> it does not really matter. Like, I know that every time I keep coming back to the, to the West, to the great American West, like the Rocky Mountains, Montana, the wide open, Washington, Oregon, California, you name it. That's where I feel home the most. Like that's where I could see myself living. Mm. But still, I've been a nomad for since 2010. So 13, 14 years almost now. Wow. Okay. So you don't have a residence apartment house in the I, US? No, I do not. I used to have property in Nashville because that was also a place that I find still find extremely appealing with the music industry, then the community, and just mm. Middle Tennessee being one of the best places there. To live according to some studies, and that's why a lot of people actually moved there just over the past years. Nashville had become one of the hottest um, housing markets in America. So I used to have property there. I never really lived there. It was rented out. And when it was time to make a decision, am I ready to move there? I said, no, I think I still need to travel a little bit more, and I sold my mm. property. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, yeah, it's a true, it's a true lifestyle. And yeah, but you have so many means of transportation with bike and truck and, and boat yep. and all these things. So nothing can really stop you. To shift a little bit away from the political discussion, which obviously can go for a very long time, a bit back to the adventure projects that you have. And you have two projects going on or now starting also part of a book. And one of that is the 50 States Project. What is that about? It's about America, all 50 states that I want to travel to. <laughs> I, You know how it is when you go, you explore a country, you fall in love with it, and then you just keep coming back to the same places because you meet people, you want to revisit, mm. and then you tend to like go to the same old. And I thought, no, I need to see all of America. There's so much more to see and explore. And again, the entire East Coast, I have not really explored too much. So mm. I decided... Like by purpose, I need to f create a project that forces me almost to go to these places. Yeah. And what a great project to, to kind of dive deep into America, like go to all 50 states, try to portray them, try to find out what they stand for, what, if you can, get a feel for it, and also figure out what's the difference between the states and maybe eventually find a place where I want to settle. <laughs> so... Started in 2016, 17. It will at least take me until 26, maybe even longer. I thought 26 would be a great year to finish the project because that's when America will turn 250 years old. So True. happy birthday, America. I Now I'm doubting this because I have, like, the first outlet for the project is a podcast that I'm doing for the public radio network in Germany. Mm -hmm. And I have traveled to 30 states so far. So there's 20 more to go. And usually I do like five to 10 per year per season. So technically I could do it in 24 and five, but there's so much other stuff lined already up that I may not be able to finish it by 2026. We'll see. And are there some qualifiers for how you have to visit them or probably more like a certain depth, like do you want to spend certain time in these states or want to find certain answers about the people living in these states? Yeah, the first visit 
you I mean, there's certainly places that I really know well because I have been coming back for 20, 30 years sometimes, like in the West, like California, Colorado, Alaska, South Dakota. Since the 90s, I've been going there because of the Lakota Sioux Indians um, and projects that I have with them. But there's other areas that, that I've never really been to uh, in some states that I never have visited, like Maine. I'm, I'm looking forward to go to Maine on the East Coast because I've heard so many great things. So the first visit is usually like a week long, five to seven days, roughly. That's mm-hmm. for the podcast that I'm doing on radio show. So I try to get a feel for it. I collect four or five, six different stories. I get some uh, photo footage. And that gives me an idea of, okay, I do some research before I go there. You know, what does the state stand for? Sometimes I already know a few things and I look for interesting characters. Sometimes I reach out to the tourism departments and tell them, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is the story angle off the beaten path, Americana things. Try to find out people or meet people who stand for the state by what they do or who they are. Do you have any suggestions? And so I go there, I, I meet these people, I interview them, and then I go back and then I say, okay, so this could be a story angle. This is maybe unique versus all the other states. And then I come back and I collect more footage and hopefully even some video footage. And who knows, maybe we'll even do like a TV show or an, uh, a, a film about it, documentary about it. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, that's such a fascinating element because obviously when you just say, well, I'm going to visit the 50 states of the U.S. And then you were to compare that to someone who says, I'm going to climb the tallest mountains in the world in three months, which is a record which was recently broken or something like that, right? Yeah. But the way you tell these stories about the people and your ability to just really dive in like deep into these cultures and pick up on some of maybe some stereotypes that's actually what people want to hear and want to read because they can identify with that and they can see well i've been to that place and i had similar or quite the exact opposite experience or something like that so i think it's a, such a wonderful element the way you travel that pretty much travel from person to person and that it just happened to be bound by some kind of geography but you pretty much just try to find these people yeah yeah, that's what it keeps me going. And it's interesting because when I started like as a photographer, I never took portraits. I always took landscapes and nature and, oh, this is mm. so beautiful. And that all shifted and I can't exactly tell you when and why, but now it's all about these people. And I sometimes I forget to take nature uh, photog- uh, photos just because I'm so involved in, okay, what's the portrait I need to shoot? Like, how can I mm. make this person stand out? What's the background I need? What's like the surrounding that tells his or her story the best? And yeah, that's ultimately what it's all about. Like it's all about mankind and people mm. living together and helping each other out. And we're on the, we're on this planet together and we can only make it work if we all get along. And that's yeah. part of the idea behind the project also. Just one question regarding one of your recent books that you had. So it's called West Coast Inn where you travel along the West Coast and you been writing that together with National Geographic. How is it when you work with such a big publisher? Like, are there a lot of requirements that, you know, things they want you to show what to ask? Or do you have a lot of freedom and they know you and you're just going to, you know, deliver the product and they're happy? Or how, how much are you being influenced when you have a book deal lined up for your trip? I'm going to burst a big bubble now, Tom. <laughs> so the publish, publishing company that I work with and have you worked with 
uh, several times before, they own the rights to National Geographic in Germany. And they decide what brand of book publisher, technically, they will release the book or which one they choose. So it's not as glamorous. It has nothing to do with National Geographic headquarters in Washington, D.C. So there's, again, it's a label that they choose because according to them or me, because I'm reaching out to them, the story matches, fits the brand, the National Geographic mm. brand. And yes, they do have to report back and then uh, they have to, I guess, get a go from the headquarters. But it's not like, oh, we can't do this because, nah, this is not an angle that would match our philosophy or our standards. So all the freedom in the world so far, and it's more about editing or the angle that the publisher actually wants and not so much National Geographic as a brand. Mm. And then the similar question, just putting it out with the publisher, do you align very much upfront with them what you're going to deliver? I have to write a pitch, right? And then they discuss this and then hopefully we'll come to an agreement. And after that, I have all the freedom in the world. And they, I mean, I've published books for so long now that, yeah. and, and there's a few out there. So they know my work and the angle. And yeah. I do not always reinvent myself because again, it's about the people that I yeah. meet. And so that's the story and then different areas that I travel to and finding these people. And I think that's also kind of a trademark, if you want to put it that way, for my work. Other people write about their own experiences and how they kind of made a transition from one job to a completely different life or they mm. find something revealing for themselves and grow as a human being. And others just do it for their own adventure or other people just try to find the beauty in nature or save the planet or something like that. For yeah. me, it is, I want to hear these people. I want to talk to them and I want to, I have, they, they actually talk in my books because I'm doing interviews and I, I kind of quote them like line by line what they said. When I do my radio shows, my podcast, the audience can listen to it. Like there's no dubbing. You hear the original voice and then I'm going to sum it up for some people who may not understand English that well. Yeah. Same with my multimedia live presentations on stage. I select clips, segments from the interviews that I had collected. And the audience will hear that while they see a big portrait of this person on the screen or even a sequence. And so they listen to this. And I, I don't think that you can have it more authentic than this. So that's yeah. ultimately my idea. That sounds really wonderful. And I think really more, I wish that more people would go out and see adventure or expeditions or exploration like you, where it's not so much about hunting the records or I'll make it until you're from that place to that place in that time with only limited means of this and that, but rather look from the people side because I, I truly believe in, I mean, that's a lot of the fundamental values of what we are doing with the World Explorers Collective as well as that. If you travel and if you connect with other cultures, you just have to become a better person. Or at least it's very hard to be ignorant and to be racist and to be condescending and all these kind of things and or nationalistic. Because if you have seen kindness in other parts of the world, there's just a very high chance that you will become a kinder person yourself. And that only really happens when you meet people. Like if you lock yourself away in a treehouse in the Amazon for two years, 
great achievement in terms of personal endurance, but probably haven't given back so much to the world and questionable how much you've developed as a character in terms of society. There's many examples and quotes of great thinkers that point out how important it is. If you want to fight ignorance, if you want to fight racism, just go travel, go out there, meet these people, kill all the stereotypes by, by being out there in the real world. And that's what yeah. we need to do. And that's ultimately, I think it becomes a little harder because of how lazy we as humans have become with social media and access to news and exposure to almost anything. But it sometimes prevents us from exposing ourselves, being out there and just living it, feeling it and being able to come to a conclusion, like yeah, form an opinion that might be re reflecting reality way better than any news or any video clip you can get on TikTok or yeah. wherever you get your social media clips from. <laughs> Dick, thank you so much for your time. It was, it was really fantastic having this chat around a different form of adventure. And as you said, you don't like the word adventure too much or it, it has been really put on to you. And I think it became obvious that you're really much more than just a person who fights against nature or anything like that, but really someone who dives deep into communities and people and seeking inspiration and that is one of the few last questions that i have is around inspiration and that is um, where you get your inspiration from or if you have a figure a person in life that is a huge inspiration for you uh, yeah i had one that unfortunately passed away it was uh, rudiger neberg which a lot of the mm -hmm. germans you know in my generation um knew he was like Mr. Survival in Germany. He was actually a baker by trade, but yeah. he loved adventure. And then back in the 60s and 70s, he learned about survival, which was brand new. It was coming from America and he educated himself. And then he went on these crazy adventures. They were epic. They were dangerous. He was actually one of the explorers that went to territories where no other white person has ever been before or had ever been before. And then he evolved into this fighter for human rights and to preserve cultures and indigenous people in South America. Before he passed away, he became this huge fighter against female mutilation that was justified by the Islam religion, which is total bullshit. And he was actually getting together with like Islamic leaders. He passed away yeah. in 2020, of course, unfortunately. Well, he was 85 years old at the time. So, yeah, but, you know, this, he was such a kind person. He was humble. He was funny. He was full of energy and passion for whatever he fought for and what he did, that he certainly was a role model that, yeah, I miss somehow. I think it's really wonderful because I've also met him once. I mean, he gave a speech when I was in high school and... For the longest time, I was fascinated and I was carrying around my signed copy of his uh, survival tips yes. book. And I actually, when I went on my personal first somewhat bigger trip, I, I brought two books. One was a medicine book and the other one was his. <laughs> uh, that I, I thought, okay, if things really happen, he had this little drawings on how to build a tent and a shelter. And I don't know, like very... Yep. Very great. And of course, as you've mentioned, a wonderful human being in terms of he very quickly realized that he had a reach with, with his adventures. And from that point in time, he flipped it into making the world a better place and not putting him on a pedestal. Yeah. Last question I have is possibly a bit more practical, but it is when you go out on your trips, if you have a certain item or 
new gadget thing that you always bring or something that in retrospect has been proven to be extremely useful. You mean besides my camera and audio recorder? <laughs> All right, let's put those things, those two things aside. Yeah. Okay. Damn. Yes, there's one thing that I take pretty much on all my adventures if I have uh, reception, which is a small um, FM stereo, like a portable radio. It's, I don't know, 20-some years old, and it almost falls apart. But I love to listen to radio when I travel, like on a bicycle. Sometimes even when I paddle my boats or in the evening to just listen to some some weather forecast, and then maybe get some music before you fall asleep. Mm. That is one of my most um, favorite items to always take along. I don't know how much longer this radio will survive because, again, <laughs> it's been down the road many miles, but yet tuning in to some local country station, crossing the heartland on this endless highways into the west where there's, like, nothing. It's flat. There's nothing but corn feeds left and right. There's nothing that really inspires you but it just keeps you going and it's just such a wonderful experience to have the music the landscape and yourself and it's just something i really enjoy so yeah i would pick that radio with some great headphones that was dirk and i have to say i really enjoyed this interview because i find it so fascinating how he puts the people in the center and how he focuses on telling these kind of small but so important stories. Before we finish this episode, there's one more piece of important information. You can receive funding for your expedition. That is correct. We give out over $2,000 worth of equipment and cash together with our partners. So if you have a meaningful expedition and you like funding, then visit worldexplorerscollective.com where you can apply and maybe you will get selected and your expedition receives incredible funding in 2024. And if you enjoyed this episode, it only takes three seconds to give some stars or some thumbs up and it absolutely means the world to us. Thank you so much for listening and I hope I see you next time.